Now, if you were listening to us last week when Daniel wasn't quite live, um, you'll have heard him say that Xanadu wasn't his favourite film. So I put that one on specially to start the show. Oh, of course, because you were playing my Flash Gordon review yes. in which I said it was the naffest film ever made. Yes. And that has just confirmed it. <laughs> what a wonderful way to welcome me back. Good to have you back. Do you have a good holiday? I, I had a wonderful time in Liverpool. Right. Um, just, yeah, a great week going around museums and uh, spending lots of money on beer. Lovely, lovely. Well... Lots to talk about. It's yes, we busy do. Busy old week, lots of new releases. So let's crack on, shall we, with what's on at the Annick Playhouse this Why not? week. A couple of films. Uh, Wednesday evening, Point Blank. Is this at the Playhouse or the Market? Uh, yes, this is the Playhouse. Yeah, uh, Point Blank, not to be confused with the John Borman film with the same name. It's a very interesting thriller, a French thriller by uh, Fred Cavalier, who made uh, Anything for Her. And it's it's good, it's well-paced, and it's, it's very smart. And then on Thursday evening, one that's still in the charts, Bridesmaids. Which we'll come to, I think, when we do the top ten because it's yeah. just on the it's at the bottom yeah. end of the top ten so 7 30 both evenings tickets six pounds 550 for concessions the playhouse box office number as ever is annick 510785 quite a mixed bag at the maltings in berwick though so shall we rattle through them yeah, quickly canter through and i'll do one yeah. sentence review uh today tomorrow and wednesday matinees of uh, zookeeper which is rubbish all right. Uh, this evening, Bridesmaids, which we'll come back to. Uh, tomorrow morning at 10.30, Wallace and Gromit in the Curse of the Were Rabbit. Which is fantastic. Um, if you're a fan of Ray Fiennes, his performance of Victor Quarterman is one of the best of his career, and it does demonstrate that something that started out as a TV short can be properly cinematic. So, worth getting up for. Uh, Monday evening, Half Price Monday, for the Extraordinary Adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec. Which is the latest by Luc Besson, who's a bit of a hack, but it's one of his better recent efforts. Right. Tuesday evening, it's Bobby Fischer Against the World. Which is... A very interesting documentary about the chess champion and later recluse Bobby Fischer. I don't think it's quite as cinematic as something like Senna, but it is a fascinating story even if you're not interested in chess. And then Wednesday evening, Horrible Bosses. Which isn't as funny as it needs to be, and again we'll come on to that because it's still in the top ten. And Thursday, The Tree of Life. Which is not Terence Malick's finest hour by quite some distance. The dinosaur scene is a mistake, but any Terence Malick film deserves to take money because he is a proper filmmaker. So quite a mixed bag up there. Yes. Right, the Mortings box office number 01289 330 Shall we do the top ten then? Yeah, let's barrel through. Number ten, and it's on Atanic on Thursday, Bridesmaids. It's been around for ages and ages and ages, and it's, it's not a masterpiece. I mean, like I, I keep saying, I could have done it without a lot of the, the overtly gross-out humour, but it's clearly worked as a comedy meant for women as opposed to a comedy like Sex and the City, which tells women... In order to be feminine, you have to go around buying expensive shoes, and Sex and the City's premiering on television this weekend, which I'm not looking forward to. Um, I think it is just about funny enough to cut the mustard. Like I say, it's, I don't think it's a perfect film, but it's, it's good fun. Right. Number nine, slated by the critics but loved by the kids, Horrid Henry the Movie. Yeah, and I have to say that, no, from the trailer I laughed. I don't think the 3D is necessary, and it's not the most brilliantly constructed comedy or children's film, but it does its job. No, I think it hits its target audience very well, and certainly compared to one of this week's new releases, it does. It makes a much better use of 3D and in a kid-friendly way. I think we're going to be talking quite a bit about some of blockbusters uh, this morning, aren't we? But Captain America at number eight. Which I like. I think that it's, it works because they struck a good balance between the inherent ridiculousness of the, of the Marvel comics and taking the plot seriously enough for the internal logic. I mean, I like Joe Johnson as a director. He made The Rocketeer and October Sky alongside his more uh, mainstream efforts like Jurassic Park 3, and this is in the same range of being a kind of nostalgic but self-aware throwback, and Hugo Weaving is great. Right, number seven is Cars 2. 
Which is disappointing, and the problem is that they made, it feels like that Pixar made it for themselves, and there are still things in the film that young children will enjoy, but they won't remember it anything like Toy Story or Wally, -E, or of course Finding Nemo, which for me is their triumph. I remember actually going to see Finding Nemo, because it had an extraordinary theatrical run, where it was in the cinemas for something like six months, and I went at the start of it and at the end of its run, right. and it was extraordinary yeah. just seeing it on screen. All right, number six, we've got Horrible Bosses. Yeah, like I said, it's not as funny as it needs to me. If you remember the Jane Fonda comedy 9 to 5, which yeah. also had a supporting performance by Dolly Parton, then it is essentially that with bawdier jokes, and it doesn't have the strength of its convictions. And a great song, of course. Yes. <laughs> we might just have that one on week, one week. Right. Number five is Mr. Popper's Penguins. Which is pretty much, as the RT synopsis would lead you to believe, RT being Rotten Tomatoes, you know, it says blandly inoffensive and thoroughly predictable. I mean, I know you're not the biggest Jim Carrey fan, as you yes. made quite clear when we talked <laughs> about this, but it isn't one of his massively gurning performances like Batman Forever, and it is at least totally harmless when so many comedies that are aimed at children often end up being the opposite. Okay. Uh, number four, Super 8. Which is good fun. I mean, it's J.J. Abrams paying tribute to Steven Spielberg in a way which is also solidly entertaining as a modern blockbuster. In the end, I'm not sure whether it's so much of an homage that it can't stand on its own and have its own identity, but I should say that the rest of the Mumbly family went to see this while I was away and they really liked it. Oh, right. Number three, finally off number one, Harry Potter. You go first. Um... Well, not Keep my it brief. <laughs> not my favourite film. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, very well filmed. Um, sorry, cinematography is very nice. The uh, didn't use do the book uh, justice. Well, fair enough. I haven't read the book, so on the basis of the film, I don't have any problem with it taking as much money as it has, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where the actors go uh, from here, because of course Daniel Radcliffe is in post production on The Woman in Black, which I'm really looking forward to. Right. Number two, it's the Smurfs. Horrible. Stupid, shamelessly derivative take on the cartoon. Do you, you must remember the cartoons. The original I do, TV, yes. TV yes. series. Um, and you remember the, the blatant rip-off called The Snorks, which was essentially the Smurfs but underwater. Yes. And the story of this adaptation, if you want to call it that, is, um, no, standard setup of the Smurfs now living in their village. One of the Smurfs is voiced by Katy Perry, which kind of tells you what you need to know. They're being hunted by the wizard Gargamel, who's played by Hank Azaria in, no, buck teeth and, no, bald wig. And in order to escape from him, they go through a time portal where they end up in New York City. And so then, after it turns into, well, Garfield, Avalon and the Chipmunks, Hop, with, and all of these films which think that the best way to do justice to a cartoon character is to have them interacting with the real world in a sort of self-aware way. Look, I've seen this film about a dozen times. Do something else. And if you're going to do a Smurfs film, do a film about the Smurfs rather than a film about New York which has Smurfs in it. Right. I was going to sort of trail that with the Smurfs song, but then I realised you'd never have got it out for the podcast. So. <laughs> Look, I don't mind the Smurfs, I just don't like the film. <laughs> right. Number one, film of the week, and for me, film of the year um, so far, absolutely uh, brilliant, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, shall I start? Yes, I think yes. you should. Uh, I mean, I have to start by saying that uh, if my mum was here, she would say that Charlton Heston, uh, that was the highlight of his uh, career mm -hmm. and he could do no ill in her eyes anyway. So uh, for her, for her um, Planet of the Apes is never to be equaled. Yes. Um, but I've got to say, this one was a prequel that was worth telling. Uh, I had my doubts about the Star Wars ones, which were very glitzy films, but didn't actually help the story very much. I think that's an uh, understatement, but go on. Because you knew exactly where it was going to end 
end up. I think that's um, the least of its problems. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, this one was always, always, you know, how did the apes ever take over the world? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a story that couldn't have been told 40 years ago because nobody would have understood how you could get to an answer that would, uh, that would uh, be credible. Yes. Medical science is now heading in a direction where there is a credible story with um, the development of uh, neuroscience and uh, yeah, brain-enhancing drugs and opportunities to uh, cure it's, uh, it's Alzheimer's, wasn't it? I think it's the, the, yes. the pretext to this, that it was uh, as a result of uh, experimenting with uh, cures for Alzheimer's on uh, monkeys that led to um, the uh, Caesar. Um, who was rescued from the experiments and then develops into uh, a very intelligent uh, monkey and yeah, eventually they take over the world. And, uh, and as such, that is um, slightly uh, scary... Um, thought there as to um you know scientific development is is good for humanity um but it comes with risk yes and for that i think it was a, it was a very compelling story on the other side uh it's one of those few films where the cgi is actually better than the hype i thought it was brilliant right uh absolutely superb um so many so many times i see cgi and i wonder you know, was it worth the effort this one it really was and right. uh I know they've been comparing it in the reviews to uh, Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Well, which that's is, because Andy Serkis yes. is involved yeah. in the motion which capture. Which was a piece of CGI I thought was very clever, but just didn't work for me. You uh, thought Gollum didn't work? No, no, I have to say, it was just not... Oh, I have to disagree with you on that. Yeah. But uh, go yeah. on, finish what you're saying. Then I... uh, and then I think on top of that, you know, good acting and a great, great film. So great. that's it. That's my rave for the morning. Yeah, I mean, all the, the only, quite apart from the fact that I think Gollum is one of the best things about Lord of the Rings and, you know, Serkis' performance is brilliant, um, the only question i would have is i've only seen the first film which it was actually on tv again the other day and of course if you've been following the podcast the guy who directed the first planet of the apes went on to make the boys from brazil which is a very interesting yeah. career move if i've only seen the first one do you recommend that i see the others first before seeing the prequel um do i need to no i don't think you do right no. No. Is there enough sort of continuity yes. between this yes. and the heston video yeah, i think so all right yeah. well i might go and see it then yeah. and uh Charlton Heston, it was classic performance. Yeah. Yes. Do you think it's better than his performance in Silent Green? Um, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, I think my mum was always the view that it was the best. Right. But, uh, anyway. We should have to look at Silent yes. Green in a few weeks or something. Yeah, and it was just a shame about that little sort of remake that they did a few years ago of Planet of the Apes, which sort of best forgotten, really. Yeah, I mean, I liked Tim Burton, but he himself has admitted that that was a, yeah. a disappointing idea. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. On to this morning's cult classic then. Uh, I was going to hopefully contribute a lot to this, but having watched it, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> oh, lucky man. Yes, uh, 1973 epic drama, or fantasy drama at any rate, directed by Lindsay Anderson, whom we talked about a few weeks ago because he's the guy who directed If, and this is the second instalment of his Mick Travis trilogy, the concluding instalment being Britannia Hospital, which we'll do in a few weeks' time. Um, it's not so much a direct sequel as a spiritual one for reasons that will become clear because the Mick Travis trilogy was never conceived as a trilogy in the way that, well, I suppose Star Wars was. The film exists by and large because McDowell pestered Anderson for the best part of four years to work with him again. The story goes that after If won the, the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1969 because it was yeah. entered into the festival the year after it came out in Britain, um, 
Malcolm McDowell was completely enthralled by Anderson because he was basically the guy who'd given him his big break and taught him everything he knew about acting, saying, we have to work together. And Anderson was like, well, I want to do something bigger, I want to do something different, I want to do something new. And he got so sick and tired of McDowell pestering, he said, right, Malcolm, if you want to work with me again, you go off and write the greatest script I've ever seen, and then maybe I'll think about it. So for the next four years, McDowell, in between doing all the other films that he was doing, particularly, of course, A Clockwork Orange, yeah. Um, spent time with uh, David Sherman, who's the screenwriter for If, coming up with a script which ended up being, by and large, although loosely, based upon his life. And it had this working title of The Coffee Man, because Malcolm McDowell started out his career in, in his teens and early 20s selling coffee in the northeast of England, which is where the film yeah. starts off. And the script went back and forth between you know, McDowell, Sherman, and uh, Anderson. And every time over those four years that they sent him a script saying, we think we've got this, Anderson would write a pithy comment back saying, too many, as in not ambitious enough, not sprawling enough, not big enough. And eventually they got to the point in late 1972 when Sherman said, look, Malcolm, what is, what is this film actually about? Because we don't actually know. He said, well, it's about luck, isn't it? So they changed the title to Lucky Man, took it to Lindsay and said, no, whispered it in his ear, said, what do you think the title Lucky Man? And Lindsay Anderson paused and went, oh, Lucky Man. <laughs> and then they decided to make it because we finally won him over. The plot is very hard to summary. I'm going to do the whole thing in a, in a second, just for the sake of it. But here's, a, here's the brief setup. Um, Malcolm McDowell plays Mick Travis, who we last saw gunning down his teachers at the college school in If. He's now a coffee salesman working for a company called Imperial Coffee, who, at the beginning of the film, is put in charge of selling coffee to the northeast of England. So, you know, it's not quite uh, appropriate to be doing it. He ends up being given Scotland as well, because he's been so successful, only to be captured by the military, who believe that he is spying for the Russians. And so that's a nuclear base. Yes, that's a nuclear base. Which then blows up. Yes. And so begins a series of adventures involving, well, in no particular order, genetic experiments, groupies, the richest man in the world, dictators, fraud, prison, Christianity, and ending up with Travis becoming a film star. Like I said, when Anderson was trying to make this film, he was constantly looking for something that had a grand scale. I mean, the, the word epic is normally associated with things like Ben-Hur or Gone with the Wind or the sword and sandals end of the, which sort of peaked in the early 60s with things like, like I say, Ben-Hur and Spartacus, which of course is drowned by Stanley Kubrick, even though that's one of his films that he wasn't actually that interested in making. And he has delivered an epic, not just in terms of its sweep, but in terms of its length. And it's a film which is equally joyous, nuanced, frustrating and utterly perplexing. And I think you certainly empathise yes. with the last one. Yeah. Because when would you have seen O Lucky Man? It must have been when I was a student in the late 70s. I would so think. it would have been on a yeah. the original release? Uh, Can you remember where you saw it? It would have been at the university, I would think. It would have been on the university film club. And were uh, you perplexed by it? Because I remember yeah. you saying that If knocked you out. Yes. Um, yes. I, it wasn't as memorable as If. Yes. And I had to sort of re-remind myself watching it uh, the second time round. Uh, I remember quite enjoying it and... Uh, thinking it was it was a good fun film and uh, watching it again, I realised how politically incorrect it was. But perhaps we'll come to that later. Yeah, um, the uh, references to the chocolate sandwich and uh, the Arthur uh, Lowe in blackface. Yes, yes, and um, the um, the views of uh, the place of women. Um, it was uh, yes, how life has moved on since the seventies. Yes, indeed. I mean, but, uh, but I remember it was it's good sort of escapist humour and you know it's sort of you know for creative minds it's great fun to watch but yes. then you sort of take a step back and you think what was that exactly and you no know, in a few weeks time we might do the magic christian which is exactly that sort of reaction of 
what the hell is going on? Yes. <laughs> so, although in a slightly less intellectual way. So, like I say, Oh Lucky Man, it's a spiritual sequel or a sister project to If. Many of the cast of If return, playing multiple and completely different roles, but the only real character continuity is with Travis. And the Travis in this film isn't simply an older version of the character in If. It's He's become much more of an everyman figure, and that reflects the, the change of emphasis from where if, whereas if was based very much on Anderson's childhood and his experiences of public school and Oxford education, whereas this is based upon McDowell, who had a, no, a working-class upbringing and so wouldn't have had those kind of experiences. So it's yeah. looking to broaden it out a little bit more. The story has been likened to um, Candide, which is um, Voltaire's sprawling 18th century uh, novel about an, an, an everyman character who is indoctrinated with, well, to use a philosophical term, Leibnizian optimism, basically believing that everybody's yeah. inherently good and the best yeah. way to succeed is to go out and uh, be an individual, basically. I mean, that's a very reductionist way of putting it. But So in Candide, you have a, a central character who goes off on a series of adventures through Europe and South America and, and eventually having his optimism eroded and discovering that the only way to make it through life is to basically smile and it shares with candide um what's known as a picaresque structure which is episodic and incredibly rambling storyline which is very difficult to summarize and in which the author or narrator often gets distracted i mean if you've read uh, the pickwick papers for instance the charles dickens novel in which it's about four reporters going around england reporting on all these whimsical stories very often in the middle of a chapter you'll get one of the characters getting distracted by like a bird that he has to yeah. shoot and so on it's that same thing of it, it takes patience to, to follow through. Or you look at something like um, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman, which was made into the film A Cock and Bull Story by Michael Winterbottom with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, and that's very yeah. interesting. Um, to illustrate the point of just how sprawling Oh Lucky Man is, I'm, I'm going to do a challenge now. I'm going to try and summarise the whole plot in the space of a minute, and I want you to time me. Right, <laughs> OK. Uh, just tell me when to go. Go. Okay, so it starts off with Travis going to the northeast, where he makes the connections by showing, uh, you know, selling coffee by going to the showings of CD films. His success leads him to be put in charge of Scotland sales, but while searching for a meeting, he's taken place, he's taken prisoner by the military who believe he's a Russian spy. As he's being tortured, the nuclear base where he's being held is attacked, and he escapes. After taking shelter in the church, he hitchhikes to the laboratory of a Dr. Miller, played by Graham Crowden, who offers him money to be part of an experiment to unleash the full potential of mankind. But he runs away from that after finding a man with a body of a sheep, hitches a lift with the Alan Price band, who used to be in The Animals, and falls in love with their groupies, played by Helen Mirren. Her father, who's played by Sir Ralph Richardson, who turns out to be the world's, world's richest man, hires Travis as his personal assistant, but then he gets dragged into shady dealings with foreign dictators, one of whom is played by Arthur Lowe, and he gets in prison for laundering gold bullion. When he's released from prison, having converted to Christianity, he has his wallet stolen while arguing with the South Asian army, he's beaten up by the homeless people, and he wanders into an audition for If, where he is directed by Lindsay Anderson in an uncurrent self-referential cameo. An hour, a uh, minute and two seconds. Oh. <laughs> but you did stumble a little. Yes, I did. You, you, were, you were close. But that's close. pretty good. But I mean, the pace is unbelievable, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's a three-hour film, but it goes at such a pace. It is. And what I was going to say was, at this point, normally, you would have every reason to kind of berate me for giving away everything that happens in the film. But the fact of the matter is... You'll have forgotten it by the time you watch it. Well, not just that. <laughs> not just that, but the fact is that Oh, Lucky Man is very difficult to follow if you don't have some prior idea of where it's going. And like you say, it's 183 minutes long. There is actually a shorter Swedish cut, which runs to 168, in which um, 15 minutes of 
more parochial British humour was taken out for whatever reason. I just think they, they guess it wouldn't uh, translate over there. And you do need a massive amount of patience to sit through all the contrivances and the oddities of the plot. There is still substance to be found in it, but many of its more interesting ideas are severely compromised by its execution. And you no, know, certainly compared to if, it's very difficult to sit through, albeit not necessarily in a bad way. Like Candide, the Voltaire novel, A Lucky Man is essentially a social satire which is wrapped up in elements of you know, epic romance and action-adventure. I mean, there is a whole tradition in the 18th century, if you look at something like Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, of doing social satire in a way which is covered in adventure to such an extent, because when Swift wrote that novel, he was looking to have a very complicated social satire, but do it in such whimsical language that the censors wouldn't notice it and it would slip through the net. You look at something as well like Robinson Crusoe, which is about, you know, which takes a more optimistic view of Van Cunningham. It's, it's the idea of, because they were written at a time when the church was still quite powerful and there wasn't, you no know, the Human Rights Act or anything yeah. of the sort. So in order for people to satirise society, they had to be sort of very well, not thinly veiled, but very sort of deeply allegorical about it. In the case of those works, it, it's very interesting. And it's, it's interesting how um, Gulliver's Travels has become completely boulderized now as just being a children's story, when in fact it's nothing of the yeah, sort. Indeed, yeah. And in this, Anderson sort of attempts the same thing with O Lucky Man. It's less successful, although his intentions are noble. And compared to more contemporary satires like The Magic Christian, it has dated a little bit better, notwithstanding Arthur Lowe doing blackface and a number of sequences which, you know, modern feminists would get very riled about, because there is a sequence of him being suck of Malcolm McDowell being suckled in a church, and there is a lot of sequences of people taking their clothes off and Helen Mirren playing a groupie and so forth, stuff that, you know, if it was being done today, would be completely unacceptable and completely reprehensible, but perhaps is excusable on the grounds that perhaps they didn't know better in the 70s. Um, the film is basically a satire of commercialism and ambition in a capitalist society. Travis begins the film guided by optimism, ambition, and his willingness to basically do anything to get rich. I mean, he seems to have completely abandoned whatever revolutionary principles he had in if, assuming, of course, that yeah. there is a direct continuity in character. And you can either put that down to just maturity, you know, acknowledging that those values were perhaps a little um, fanciful. I was going to say stupid, but that's unfair. Or just acceptance of base self-interest, that the only way to make it in life is to pretend to be the person you're not. And that's reflected in the tagline, smile while you're making it, laugh while you're taking it, even though you're faking it, no one's going to know, which is a mm. line from the Alan Price song that's placed over it. And in the same way as if was a satire on the public school establishment, you can see Anderson retuning the character in O Lucky Man to look at two things. First of all, the selling out of a lot of his left-wing comrades, because Anderson was a member of the Labour Party and he was very prominently yeah. social democratic. And this was at the point in time when there had been a number of Labour governments and there was a feeling that they hadn't achieved as much as they wanted to and perhaps there was no the champagne socialists were, were in power and so forth so there was a feeling of him well, that was in preview of things to come wasn't it it was <laughs> yes i mean i certainly i don't know what because he he died before new labor came in but i don't think he would have been <laughs> too pleased uh, so there's there's a, a kind of <clears throat> attack on that but also it's it's a way of directing the character as an allegory for britain as a whole because this was around the time when when keynesian economics was being abandoned and there were there were talks about dismantling or altering parts of the welfare state and if you, there is a comparison with this idea is brought out more in britannia hospital which shares a link with that um pink floyd album called the final cut when in the sense of it's about the post-war dream being dismantled and what britain is losing in the process when everyone's just becoming more obsessed about money 
It's also a film quite predominantly about luck, because most of Travis's experiences come less from having talent or skills or experience, but just being in the right place at the right time. I mean, his success in the Northeast selling coffee comes largely because of the fact that he gets to network with the other locals in the seedy backstreet cinema. I wonder if those places ever existed. Well, <laughs> perhaps not in a shed around the back of a hotel, but, I mean, but if, you know, if you've seen Get Carter, then that sort of thing happens yes. all the time. Um, also, you know, when he gets interrogated by the army, um, there's a point where he actually starts pretending to be Russian as a way to get over with, and then the base is attacked, so he thinks, okay, I can stop doing that now. And when he becomes Sir James' assistant, Sir James played by Ralph Richardson, he gets the job just because he happens to know Sir James's daughter, not because he's qualified, and also because the previous personal assistant happened to commit suicide by jumping out of the window, and he closed the window, so, oh, I'll hire you instead. And the, it's a, quite a trite point to make of it's not what you know, it's who you know. But at least Anderson does make it with such relish to show how the idea of capitalist meritocracy in which everyone can get where they want by basically being the best they can is actually quite a hollow idea, or at least has become a hollow idea in the way that it's been applied to Britain. So all of these are valid points and very interesting ideas. The problem is that they often get misplaced or buried in the increasingly ridiculous series of events. I mean, the central problem is that Travis is supposed to be an everyman whom we can relate to, but his experiences become so fantastical and so strange that even when the allegory is played very obviously, they never quite tap into the nub of the issues. Now, you could argue, I suppose, that this was done out of respect for the audience. Anderson saying, well, I don't need to let to you, you're intelligent yeah. enough to fill in the blanks. But even then, there is a little bit too little for us to grab onto to spot the intelligence in the most, in the most interesting elements. And there is a comparison with um, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was one of the first films we did on this lot when Paul yeah. Young was still hosting the show. The Man Who Fell to Earth, no, Lucas Rogue film from 1976 with David Bowie in, which is incredibly incoherent and about, no, two and a half hours, three hours long. I was watching it again recently. But even when it's being incoherent and indulgent and going on a bit longer than it needs to, there is a feeling of profundity running through it because you have the themes which keep coming back through the yeah. dialogue and so forth. And it doesn't feel the need to just keep snatching onto strange things in order to keep things moving, whereas A Lucky Man is more like Woody Allen's sleeper of just, um, we need to have another strange event just to move the plot on a bit. The tone of the film, it, it's very uncontrollable, because you have the sequences in Dr. Miller's laboratory, which, like I said, involve a man with the body of a sheep, which is played for straight-ahead horror, I and mean, it is straight out of the island of Dr. Moreau, yeah. the H.G. Wells novel yeah. about an island full of man-animal hybrids, which served as the basis for Alien Resurrection, actually. But in other scenes, they're like... Because Anderson started out in the British New Wave from which we get the kitchen sink genre, and some of the sequences are almost like parodies of his earlier work. There's a sequence where... Travis is trying to um, stop this character called Mrs. Richards. She's locked herself in this block of flats and is going to kill herself, and he's trying to persuade her not to by reading her extracts from a... Yeah. I think it's Tom Paine, but I can't quite remember. And the dialogue of that is like a parody of Kitchen Sink, and it, there's actually a quite a... A significance, because Mrs. Richards is played by Rachel Roberts, who was the older woman in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, you know, whom Albert yeah. Finney accidentally gets pregnant. And there's actually a tragedy, because Rachel Roberts would actually commit suicide herself in 1980, so there is a sort of veil of melancholy over that scene, even when you're feeling a bit absurd. There are also moments which are so completely out of left field in the film that you have to pinch yourself. You mean the church scene? That um, was completely bonkers. It was bonkers. I mean, the one that I was going to pick on was the judge scene, when you have yes. the judge at Mick's trial after he's been, like I say, tried and convicted for laundering gold bullion. And he goes back into his, his chambers after passing sentence, strips off to reveal next to nothing under his gown, and is whipped by the usher. <laughs> I mean... 
it's one of those things where you could say, oh, well, Anderson's making a comment about sexual perversity yeah. in uh, public school practices. But it is like you've wandered into that Monty Python sketch <laughs> with the gay judges talking about banging gavels yeah. and waggling wigs. Because it's that side of town. A lot of the film does feel like it was partly or wholly made to get the gang back together. And, you know, you, you do have a lot of people turning up before, like, say, Graham Crowden, who was the history professor in IF, who cycles into the classroom on the bicycle. He plays three roles. Dr. Miller, who turns up in Britannia Hospital. A Scotsman who gets fired as Anderson, as Mick Travis comes in to get the job yeah. for um, Sir James. And he plays a toothless beggar who beats up McDowell in the final scene and whose wife is toothless and laughs all the time. Arthur Lowe, who is the master in IF, turns up as black-faced dictator and that's very uncomfortable i mean again you can talk about it of the time you know this was a time when peter sellers could get away with dressing up as an indian and things like the party and the millionaires you also have the uh, the inclusion of alan price who was the keyboardist for the animals his band act as a sort of greek chorus sort of coming in every now yeah. and again playing a song and commenting on the events and that came about because anderson originally wanted to make a documentary about alan price going on tour but he couldn't afford the song right so he thought well i'll put them in the film instead and there's a couple of other interesting points in the cast which link with Stanley Kubrick, because, of course, this was made just after A Clockwork Orange. Um, Warren Clark, who plays Dim in A Clockwork Orange, the, one, no, the fat one who yeah. becomes a police officer, uh, he turns up very briefly as a male nurse who wheels Malcolm McDowell into um, Dr. Miller's Institute to be experimented on. There is also a very brief performance by Philip Stone, who plays both the general interrogating McDowell as a Russian spy and the head of the Salvation Army. And as I was watching the film, I'm thinking... I've seen this guy before, he's really intimidating. And then I remembered, it's Delbert Grady from The Shining. He's going to come <laughs> after me with an axe! <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. yes. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir, but you are the caretaker. Yes. You've always been the caretaker. <laughs> so, yeah, that was quite a nice thing. So, to sum up, it's a sprawling and completely bizarre follow-up to If, which is as confusing as it is enthralling and frustrating as it is noble. Like the bed sitting room, which again we talked about in a previous podcast, it has a number of very interesting, very relevant, very, in some cases, profound ideas which just get let down by their execution. And in both cases, you do need a lot of patience to sit through them. So it's massively and tragically flawed, but for all the things that are wrong with it or that have become slightly dated, you do end up going with it and it does eventually come through with the goods and it is quite a compelling uh, 70s effort. And even though I couldn't quite work out what the point was, it was lovely to see and hear Alan Price. Yes. A huge fan of, so that was good. We'll do the uh, new releases after this. Live from Alec, this is Lionheart Radio. Right on to the new releases. Can and we, before we do, aren't you forgetting something? Oh yes, next week's cult classic. Eraserhead. Should be fun. David Lynch's debut film, I can't wait. Should be fun. Right, on to the new releases. And if um, my Facebook... Uh, uh, friends or anything to go by. This is going to be a huge hit in between us. Okay, um, big screen spin-off of the E4 series about four foul-mouthed teenagers, uh, directed by Ben Palmer, who apparently directed the second series. I have to say, I never saw the TV series, and on the basis of this, I don't want to. Um, the story is that there's these four kids who are about to leave high school. One of them is completely obsessed with sex. He gets dumped by his girlfriend and says to the lads, um, "Let's end up. Let's go on a holiday together." And they end up going to Crete. Uh, they spend their time staying in a terrible hotel, getting drunk and trying to have sex with a series of women. And it's quite short, actually. It's about uh, 75, 80 minutes. There is a sad tradition in Britain of creating feature-length spin-offs to TV series in which the story is always the same, you know, send them abroad. I mean, you look back to things like, uh, well, 
on the buses did one yeah. of those. I mean, yeah. the, some some of them are all right. I mean, things like the the TV film of Dad's Army, which isn't too bad. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just it's a very lazy way of doing it, and it's always a, a sign that if a TV show has to do that, it's run out of steam. And you, you look at something like the Morecambe and Wise film, which they are essentially extended episodes with a lot of the gags recycled, and it's just very very depressing. I have to admit that I watched the trailer and I didn't laugh. Admittedly, I'm not the Tyler Orgins, but it does look very, very televisual and all of the gags are forced and, I mean, you, obviously you can trace the central idea of this back to things like, well, Porky's and Animal House primarily, but whole sections of the film do look like Kevin and Perry go large because there is... Do you remember in Kevin and Perry Go Large, which is the spin-off of the Harry yeah. Enfield characters, where they go to basically go to Ibiza to to lose their virginity, and there's a sequence of Harry Enfield walking down the street in a, an England shirt, if I remember rightly, and it's that because it was made in sort of that Manchester yeah. scene. Well, there is a sort of reference to that because of the fact that the sex obsessed guy does walk around with a Euro '96 <laughs> shirt on, and it's it just feels rather retrograde. So I mean, I fully. I have to accept that, you know, having not seen the TV series, I might not get what makes the series so popular and so interesting. But on the basis of this, the film's rubbish. Yeah. And if you listen to Lewis Denny on Monday evening, you may get a slightly different view on it. I'm, yeah, I'm willing to accept <laughs> that, you know, if you're a fan of the TV series, it may work, but it's not right. pulling me in. Okay, uh, next, Cowboys and Aliens. New film by John Favreau, who started out as an actor in Swingers, which also <laughs> launched the career of Vince Vaughn. Um, he's since become a fairly, re a fairly reasonable blockbuster director, because he made Zathura, which was like a spiritual sequel to Jumanji. And then he directed the first two Iron Man films, and apparently the third Iron Man film is going to be directed by Shane Black, who wrote the Lethal Weapon films. So, the story, it's set in America in 1875, and Daniel Craig wakes up in the middle of nowhere, he's got no memory, and this bizarre metal band strapped round his wrist. He wanders into town where he is recognised by Oliver Wilde as the fugitive Jake Lonergan, which is you know, possibly a reference to The Sting, because, of course, Robert Shaw's character is called Doyle Lonigan. And uh, Harrison Ford, playing the grumpy sheriff, I know, what a stretch, <laughs> he wants to turn him in, but before he can take him to the federal marshal, their town is attacked by aliens, and they end up teaming up as they fight for their lives. So, a good, credible plot. Yes. I mean, it's a classic example of the drawback to high-concept films in which the title is everything. I mean, there is a big tradition in in exploitation cinema of putting two incongruent franchises together, because in the 1960s or something, there was King Kong versus Godzilla. Or you look at something in comic books like the Justice League, which is famous, you know, Superman and Batman on the same page with Wonder Woman coming in from the side. And the th thing about that is there is some thrill initially about, you know, it's James Bond and Indiana Jones on the screen getting to punch aliens. But there's only so long before the initial thrill of that fades and the story isn't enough to take over. I mean, I'll give you a classic example of a film where it works. Um, we talked about Who Framed Roger Rabbit a few weeks ago. Yeah. And yeah. famously, that has two instances of two rival characters appearing because you have the, the dueling piano scene with Donald and Daffy Duck and then the sequence where Bob Hoskins is falling from the window when Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are talking to him. Yeah. In which, no, it's... Putting, it's doing what the fanboys want of putting the franchises together, but it's not the be-all and end-all of the story. It's a pleasant little yeah. interlude. I mean, the special effects are well-rendered, but they do dominate. The plot is quite plodding. The characters are, by and large, stock. So it's not awful. It's just a bit of a missed opportunity. And, no, I like Harrison Ford, and this is... He is slowly getting back to the form he was in around the time of Fractured, but it's it's 
it's a bit of a downer for him. Okay, a couple of films now which are getting good critical acclaim. We'll start with In a Better World. Okay, new film by Suzanne Beer, who's the Danish director who directed the original version of Brothers before it was remade in English by Jim Sheridan uh, two years ago. And it got some Oscar buzz, but it was uh, rather unremarkable. The story is that you have a Danish doctor working in the Sudan who is treating victims of abuse from a very sadistic warlord known as the, the Evil Man. And he and his wife are contemplating divorce because he's constantly away from the family home and the, their boys are growing up a bit maladjusted. Meanwhile, one of their children is being bullied at school by a boy whose father is a mechanic, and when he's defended by another boy who comes from London, over from London called Christian, they conspire to get revenge on the family, uh, culminating in a rather disturbing scene involving a car bomb. Mm. Yeah, um, this won the Oscar for the best foreign language film earlier this year, and as is so often the case, you feel like the Academy gave it to the wrong film. It was up against that film Asandi, which was a very interesting drama about Middle Eastern politics. On the one hand, there are a number of interesting issues raised. I mean, it's there, there are parallels in the experiences of the father and the son because the father is, you know, because both of their stories follow about, you know, working the relationship with your enemies and the idea of loving your enemies because the father ends up having to treat the warlord or the warlord's son, whereas the, the son is, you know, do I fight back against my enemies or do I just let them carry yeah. on and you know, grow stronger as an individual? I was reminded to some extent of, have you ever seen The Power of One? No. It's a little-known no. 90s film um, set in, uh, I think it's early 20th century South Africa, in which it is about... It's about this, this young man who struggles against um, a bully who's a, who becomes a neo-Nazi and it follows their relationship kind of crossing paths over 40 years until eventually they end up fighting each other in the last scene of the yeah. film. And it's, it's not remarkable, but it's an interesting you know, film with a very good soundtrack. The problem with this is that it's very melodramatic and it doesn't tackle the issues with anything like the conviction it needs to make it worthwhile. And like... The recent work of Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu, including Beautiful, which was also up for the best foreign language film. In the end, it wants to be metaphysical and profound and interesting and about sort of human interconnectedness, but it ends up flanning around a little bit. I mean, there are interesting things in it, and the characters are very well formed. And like I say, if you're a fan of things like... Well, there are hints of The Last King of Scotland in there, in, in the father character, then I think you'll find... You might find it more rewarding, but it doesn't have... The, the sort of grabbing or the staying power that it needs to make it a, a worthy first-rate film. Right, next one, which is getting also very good critical acclaim, The Guard. Which um, we might have talked about about a, a month ago because it was in the top ten but only released in Ireland and was... Oh, yes, I remember that, yes. yes. And uh, now it's finally out. It's the new comedy starring Brendan Gleeson, which has been billed in the Timesides magazine as Lethal Weapon meets Father Ted. <laughs> so I instantly like it. it. Directed by John Michael McDonough, who is the brother of Michael McDonough, who also directed Gleason in In Bruges. Did you see In Bruges? No. A few years ago? No. Very, you know, very full-on, interesting uh, comedy thriller, which also had a great performance by Ray Fiennes playing a Cockney gangster, and he does that very well. The story is that Gleason plays an unorthodox Irish cop. There are scenes of him in the trailer interviewing suspects while cavorting in a hotel with two ladies. Not at the same time, but they're intercut. And he is teamed with a straight-laced FBI agent played by Don Cheadle, in a very good comedy performance, actually, to bring down a smuggling ring in Connemara led by villain of choice Mark Strong. If the trailer is to believe, it's really, really good fun. I mean, it's, it's very funny. A lot of the humour is very awkward and very un-PC. There's a line where Don Cheadle's giving a press conference and he asks Brendan Gleeson to take back a, a, well, yeah. a racist slur that he made about black people and Brendan Gleeson goes, but I'm Irish. Racism is part of our culture. <laughs> So there's stuff like that, and there's, it also reminded me of that episode of Father Ted where Ted's 
uh, offended the Chinese community and he spends the episode trying to convince him that he's not a racist and feigning every turn. There's that scene where after buying them all a drink, they go back to his house and it's full of Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. I can explain everything. Well, actually, no, I can't. Um, I mean, the plot is pretty stock in trade. I mean, there are hints of lethal weapon in there, obviously, yeah. because it's, you no know, the, the putting the two together. Yeah. There's a slight inversion of the partnership. There's also hints of... Um, there's a, an old Will Hay comedy from the 1930s called Oh, Mr. Porter. Oh, yes, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, yes. in which he becomes the station master of Buggles Kelly, which is yes. near Connemara, and he accidentally aids smugglers by laying on the trains. Yeah. yeah. And that's a very funny film, actually. You should check it out. I don't think it's on DVD, but if you've got an old VHS, then, uh, then track it down. So if you like In Bruges, or if you fancy a black comedy but you can't get in to see the re-release of Kind Hearts and Coronets, or if you like Father Ted, then this is definitely the film of you, and it's one of the yeah. films of the week. Right. Which brings us to Kind Hearts and Coronets, yes. Alec Guinness. Yes. Re-release of the classic eating comedy considered by many, myself included, to be the greatest eating comedy. Directed by Robert Hamer and famously featuring Alec Guinness in eight roles, although apparently he was originally only paid for four, but he insisted on playing eight. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was in his prime, so he could yes. get away with it. The story follows a young man called uh, Louis Manzini, who is played by uh, Dennis Price, who is the illegitimate son of an aristocratic woman who has been shunned by her relatives in the Dascoin family, after she eloped with an Italian opera singer, and uh, at the start of the film, both his parents are dead, he's been sort of grown up as a young man, and he decides to take revenge by killing off all the family members that stand between him and inheriting the Duke of Chelfon, which is what the Dascombe family hold, and all the family members, male, female, old, young, are played by Alec Guinness. It's really, really, really great. I mean, there is fantastic deadpan comic acting from Alec Guinness, who remains a, a great actor. There was a wonderful interview when he got an honorary Oscar, I think, in the 70s, in which he told a story about um, getting acting lessons from his teacher and how they, she would put an actual wooden frame around their face and saying, look happy, look sad, look angry, look nasty, look yeah. strange. And he quickly realised that the best way to do those emotions was to do absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> and in this, you know... It, it's one of those things where you know it's the same guy playing all the roles in the same way as when you look at something like Dr. Strangelove, you know that all three of them are played by Peter Sellers, but they do have individual personalities. And for its day, really great special effects, because there is the sequence where they're sitting in the church where there's a funeral going on, and the camera pans around to see all eight members of the family he's going to kill, all played by Alec Guinness in a very early use of yeah. split screen, which you know, looks back to Buster Keaton's work on The General, which is the first film to have the hundreds of people getting out of the car in a very interesting split-screen shot. It's a use certificate, unbelievably, for a, fam for a comedy about a serial killer which involves <laughs> a lot of murder. Of, of course, crucially, you don't see any of the murders yeah. happening, and it's, it's played in that wonderfully sort of... In a very darkly whimsical way, there's a sequence where um, one of the characters Alec Guinness is playing is a suffragette, and you see her floating over London in a balloon. And Dennis Price stands at the window with a bow and arrow, and he lets fly, and there's a sort of doo in the musical cue, and he goes, I shot an arrow through the air. She fell to earth in Barclay Square. And it's that sort of humour where you don't have to see the murders, but it's just, you can't help laughing. They used to get like that, I guess, with the Children's Film Foundation. They used to take on some pretty serious subjects. Yeah, but I mean, they would do it in a, a way that wouldn't um, scare children. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't, I do think that if you have, maybe not children under the age of, say, seven or eight, but if you take yeah. them to see Kind Hearts and Coronets, they will love it. I mean, they yeah. might not get all the social satire references, um, but it is still one of the funniest films of the 1940s and it's many ways Alec Guinness's finest hour not because not just because he can play so many but because he is so convincing yeah Gee, um, 
when I was a kid, every Tuesday night after Nationwide, now that's a subject all of itself, but uh, they used to have an evening comedy on BBC mm. One every Tuesday evening. It's about, I think it was about quarter to seven, and I used to love that. It used to be one of the highlights of the week. Which is your favourite evening comedy? Oh, I can't, I can't even start to think about that one. I'll have to have a week to get my head around that one. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I think that, because The Lady Killers has also been recently released, and I think that might be unlimited as well, but Kind Hearts and yeah. Coronets will be at the Tyneside uh, next week, I think. Right. Have I left you enough time to talk about Spy Kids 4D? Yes. Now, when we were planning this, I said you might have to expect a rant, and I'm, I'm going to try and avoid this as best I can, but I have a lot to say. It's the new f Spy Kids all the time in the world in 4D, for reasons that will become clear. It's the new film by Robert Rodriguez, who made all, pre all three previous Spy Kids films, of which the first one is good, the second one's all right, and the third one in 3D is utter rubbish. And if, if, I don't know if you saw any of the Spy Kids films when they came out about sort of eight years ago. No. But that fe that the third one featured Sylvester Stallone playing the villain as a floating robotic head, and it was really terrible. Anything with him is going to be questionable for me. <laughs> yes, I mean, there, there are odd times when he's okay, like Copland, but they're few and far between. So... It's more or less the same premise as before. You have ordinary kids growing up whose parents are secretly spies. The parents' lives become endangered, and so they, the kids have to become spies to save the day. But this time, of course, because the original children have since grown up and become proper actors, so to speak, you have a new batch of children whose stepmother is played by Jessica Alba. She gives her daughter a red sapphire necklace, which her mother previously owned. But it turns out that this necklace is the missing piece in the plan of an evil genius, played by Jeremy Piven, to build a machine that can stop time and in the manner of these things you have the previous spy kids turning up in the Q role in you know, the bond yeah. scene just providing the new ones with gadgets when i was in liverpool um i went to the beatles museum where as part of the exhibition as the history of the beatles they had a 4d film in which you watch an animation very tenuously connected with the beatles you know there's a guy in it who looks vaguely like ringo Starr, but isn't yeah. voiced by ringo Starr. and while it's in 3d you have seats that move around and occasionally you get water squirted at you and that's what 4d is and it does prove that sort of experience the total trashiness and pointlessness of 3d the fact that you're having all these effects and this this peripheral stuff thrown at you to yeah. distract from the fact that the film isn't any good at all. In this case, we don't have people having water squirted. We have 3D plus aromascope, which if you go back to um, the 1960s or... Smelly vision! Yes, or the scratch and sniff cards that yes. you used to get in the horrible history yeah. books and so forth, where you could smell people's boils and so forth. So, I mean, it does allow people to make the joke that the film is a total stinker, and boy, is it a total <laughs> stinker. First of, first of all, it is a total piece of money-grubbing trash. I mean, it was made eight years after the last film. You've got a completely new cast. Rodriguez apparently got the idea for this film and for doing it in Smell-O-Vision, or Aromascope, whatever you want to call it, when he was making Machete, and Jessica Alba was in that, and Jessica Alba had her one-year-old child on set, and she would frequently have to stop in the middle of the takes to go and change its nappies. And he thought the idea, well, what about a supermom who, who actually has, who is a spy, but actually has to do that as well? Yeah. And, you know, you can understand where he got the idea of smelling it from. Um, the plot is virtually non-existent. I mean, the, the villain's plan is ripped off of... Um, do you remember Bernard's Watch? It's a TV programme about a, a kid who no. was given the ability no. to stop time, which, of course, in itself was based on a Twilight Zone episode called A Kind of a Stopwatch, where a guy has yeah. a watch that can stop time, and eventually he breaks the watch so no one can ever move again, and it's a very interesting, chilling Twilight Zone episode. Whereas this just barrels forward from one pointy, pointless set piece to the next, and then randomly it stops. On top of all that, you have terrible acting, I and mean, Jessica Alba is absolutely dreadful. If you saw the BAFTAs last year where she presented an award, she, she looked so completely gormless even when reading an autocue, and you just get the sense of you're being put on screen because you're pretty and you can't do anything else. 
it's so bad that Antonio Banderas, who was who has a, a, a sizable appearance in the film and was one of the best things about the original few films, actually asked for his name to be taken off the credits because he didn't want to be associated with it. It's utter garbage, and it's not a proper kids film, and it's pointless to it being in 3D, let alone 4D, and if you go for the Ricky Gervais cameo as a talking dog, that's not even funny. Right. So it's not your film of the week? No. The film of the week is a double bill of Kind Hearts and Coronets and the Guard. Great. Good. You're back next Saturday. I am. We shall be doing a raise ahead. Um, out of the stuff that's still in the cinema, I mean, you'd recommend Planet Rise of the Planet yes, of the Apes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I would say Super 8 or Captain America or Horrid Henry if you've got kids. Good. Taking us out to the news, just a little snatch of Alan Price. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.